Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome to Hashing It Out. I'm your host, Colin Couchet. Corey can't make it today. He's in Paris doing some really cool work with Status. Today we have uh, uh, Stan Kladko, Constantin Kladko. Jeez, yeah, you're yeah. right. Maybe it's a lot easier if I say Stan, huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, from Scale Lab. So we'll we'll have him on. Uh, we're having him on to uh, talk about what he's doing. And uh, yeah, maybe you could give us a quick intro. Um, about uh, about yourself, how you got into the space, and what you guys are doing at Skill. Yeah, so I'm actually you know a very typical nerd. So I've been doing physics for quite a long time. So I did my PhD in physics at Max Planck Institute in Germany, and then I moved to the States. I was at Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico. Then moved to California to Stanford University. I was doing physics there. My boss there was a Nobel Prize winner in physics. So um, by background, I'm a physicist. But then when I moved to Silicon Valley, it was right exactly this like startup time. So as many of my friends, I moved from research to startups. So I joined the startup, which was founded by Stanford by Professor Bonnet, a crypto guy. And it was a startup uh, which was doing a cryptographic hardware box. Uh, the startup ended up raising like $50 million and uh, we ended up selling also for $50 million. So it didn't really make much money, but I have many friends coming from this time. And that's how I started in crypto. Then after that, I started the Crypto Lab, which was affiliated with American government, National Institute of Standards and Technology. And our lab was doing all kinds of crypto certifications, evaluations, penetration testing, for many, many products in Silicon Valley. So I've been doing this for several years, this crypto lab, and then actually started my own crypto startup, which was in Wi-Fi space. So we raised money from investors. And that's why when I got back to Ukraine, uh, because I needed to hire an engineering team. And so we hired an engineering team in Ukraine and ended up selling the startup, uh, this Wi-Fi startup to a telecom company in London, in UK. So this Wi-Fi software is still operational and actually works in many cities, in New York City, in San Francisco, in London, in many other places around the world. And after this startup, I started another startup. We got money for, for basically a platform which was going to simplify big data and AI. And we got money from two venture capital firms, Signia Ventures and Flavia Capital, to build the actual prototype. But when we started selling this big data software, what we found out, it's really hard for a tiny startup to compete with like Google's and AWS's and Microsoft's of this world. So you have a startup, you're trying to sell it, or you're trying to pilot it. Then you see that people are saying like, okay, it's a great prototype, but I'm going to be like there in five years or 10 years. So having all of these huge companies nowadays is pretty hard to compete in SaaS. I can attest so, to that personally. Yeah, that's yeah, that was yeah, my experience as well. It's, it's tough. Yeah, so I understand. It's really, pretty much like got back to our investors. And there was pretty much one way was just to shut this down, like to actually hire. And we had several offers to actually hire this startup. But what our investors said, no, we tried something else. In particular, Mike Maples never likes like shutting things down. He always, if, if there's some money remaining in the startup, he wants to do something else. And then uh, our other venture capital firm, Rick Thompson, he really said that you guys have to, to take a look at crypto. And it was exactly like the moment when uh, crypto was like going skyrocketing. And I literally like 
uh, and Rick said, you know, you can actually create this ERC20 token on Ethereum and stuff, and you can use big data, whatever. And I, I jumped on an airplane and got to DIFCON 3. And I didn't even have a ticket. I had a VC guy who actually gave me his badge. So I got into this uh, DIFCON 3. And like the moment I got in there, it, it was in Cancun. I realized that that's the place I want to be. Even if the VCs end up not giving me any money, it's really like a, like a totally new thing. Mm -hmm. And it's really early, early time. So I saw like Vitalik was jumping on a, like a unicorn. And people were literally like cheering and celebrating. And, you know, it was really like, I think like if you know there was this summer of love in San Francisco, flower of power. It was like very interesting feeling of people like that found something interesting. So I was really excited and got back to uh, to San Francisco, and then we started to understand what we can do. Obviously, you know, our background was this big data, so we could make things faster. And then, and then we were looking for a CEO for for a partner, and through Signia Ventures, I found Jack, who ended up also working on crypto, and ended up we ended up like really finding chemistry together and uh, working really well. And Jack has a separate background. His background is in pharma, but then he was doing pharma and he actually stumbled on this idea of digital money, using digital money to essentially inside corporations uh, distribute resources. So he also got to the crypto space and we got together with Jack. And then, and then since it was big data, I mean, it was obvious that the idea was scaling Ethereum is slow, so we decided to look how we can speed up Ethereum using big data. And then initial idea was to do uh, an exchange, a really fast decentralized exchange. And I remember we went to some investors at Harvard at, and MIT, and people were saying, yeah, you guys have to do an exchange because it's very simple. Is a delta is slow, so just do a faster exchange and you can charge like some money every, every time a transaction goes. So we really kind of thought about the exchange for a while, but then we said, okay, if we can do a change, well, why don't we actually, you know, create an infrastructure where someone else uh, actually can do the change? And that's how we decided to do scale. And we got back to investors <clears throat> and raised uh, some amount of money, $800,000, seed round from, from the current investors, Floodgate Capital and Singia Ventures. And that's actually how scale started. And I'll tell you like a little later how it proceeded. But basically, that was was the original scale. Gotcha. So, can you describe some of the product in, in more detail then of what you're you're trying to do with this and where who you think will actually be the target user for this? So, actually, I think the concept of the product changed a little bit. You know, yeah, when you like it's, it's a tough. It's it's like what do we call <clears throat> these exactly? I don't want to be interrupting you, but like I completely agree. That's a very astute observation that these are more like protocols these are more like systems are more like packaged reusable kind of like modules that you can actually put into other larger applications or integrate into larger enterprise systems they have their own value proposition it's up to you to make that value proposition so it's one of the challenges is actually figuring out how you get money from these sort of things so i'm actually curious like what do you what are you exactly. building so when we started i think uh, we started with a simple idea just ethereum is, is uh, slow but we create essentially a parallel network where you can offload some of the Ethereum transactions and make them faster. But then pretty much like every, every time you go to a VC, you learn about the, the idea of this product market fit and you have to define your market. And initially we thought simplistically that you know the market is uh, just transactions, but basically paying small amounts of money for coffee or whatever for parking. But now we see that in 2020, the timing is a little bit different. You have just the small transactions. You have DeFi, centralized finance, essentially people crowdsourcing loans and loaning money to each other. You also have games. And then you have decentralized uh, social networks, essentially decentralized cloud, like decentralized Google. So what we see timing-wise is that I don't really think that small payments, like just paying for coffee, is uh, really important in 2020. Maybe it will be important in 2023. But at this moment, you know, many people are actually quite successful with their credit cards or cash, and you have to really get a you know, critical mess to pay for coffee in crypto. 
But what, what we see a lot, uh, definitely what we see is uh, centralized finance. Basically, I think it can be in general explained by the fact that if you just hold Bitcoin, you know, basically the idea is that you buy Bitcoin, you, you wait for 20 years, and then after 20, 20 years, Bitcoin is going to be super expensive, right? And then you win. But, for my, but that's all, only targets a small subset of people because many people are not actually ready to wait 40 years. On the other hand, if you can provide a product that provides people, you know, 5% annual rate, risk-free or low risk, or 6% annual rate, actually there are many, many people will jump for that. So to, to move to mainstream, I think it's important that we're kind of moving from this idea of of hodl which is more for like early adopters and enthusiasts. So the idea that every an average Joe, you know, can take some money, put it in some DeFi application, and then and then uh, you know earn this five to seven, six percent interest. So that's why I think it's really DeFi is picking up so much, and I think we're gonna see many, many, many applications of DeFi this year. And it's I think one of the critical applications is gonna be people-to-people -people lending. Where you know, if I if I am a developer, if I'm an engineer on GitHub, I am I'm a super like cool developer, but I may be living in Ukraine, right? In Ukraine, no one can get get any loan. So, but maybe since I have my GitHub stars and I'm a super cool developer, some other people on the internet can lend me money, so I can buy a car or I can buy you know mortgage or whatever. So this DeFi is picking up a lot. And so what scale target? What we realized is that we need to move just from simple payments. To define, but then if you take DeFi, the next thing is games, the next thing is uh, centralized social networks, centralized Google, and then the idea becomes actually centralized cloud. So what, what we kind of evolved to is that we started with just speeding up transactions, but then we realized what we need to do is essentially a decentralized competitor to AWS, where every AWS server becomes a blockchain. So it's, it's a very simple mental picture. You take AWS, so you take internet, and then you take every single AWS server, like eBay, you know, Facebook, whatever, and you turn it into a blockchain. And then these blockchains need to interact, and then it's all ETH compatible. The reason why it all needs to be ETH compatible, Ethereum compatible, Solidity compatible, because that's the only community which exists. That's the only community which has development tools, programming language. And the history shows that once a programming language appears, it's, it's, it's very hard to kill it. So Solidity may be not perfect, but you know people will evolve it. And it's kind of an evolutionary way, very similar to JavaScript. You know, JavaScript is really not today as it was 20 years ago, but it's still called JavaScript. And that's a kind of an evolutionary future that we bet on is that Solidity is going to evolve into this language that will be used to create decentralized cloud applications. And our purpose at scale is that by the end of the year, we want to say that anything you can do on AWS, you will be able to do on scale. So Sure. So, yeah. so when you say anything you'll be able to do on AWS, you'll be able to do on scale, mm -hmm. AWS does a whole lot here. I mean, uh -huh. it does. So, all right. How are you going to integrate with stream processing? How are you going to integrate yeah. with S3? Like there's projects like storage, which try to build decentralized file yeah. storage that is S3 compatible, but it's not getting the traction that you'd think it'd get. Um, how are you going to actually serve content? Um, because blockchains are terrible, terrible uh, forms of mechanisms for storing data. Um, they're extremely, in hyper, like, extremely inefficient, hyper-redundant databases. They are not intended for EBS style storage systems. So what is what do you mean when you say anything you could do on AWS you could do in scale? Because that's a that's a very 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 bold vision that has a yeah. lot of steps cut out. Uh, this is a great question actually. So I think there are several answers to this. One answer is that when we got together on like this year with our guys like inside the scale we don't want to be like all other guys. And what all other guys do, they, they just release their network, then they have the token, then they start to sell the, sell the token and run away, basically. So the release of the network is pretty much you know, the end in this sense. We want it to be a beginning in a sense, we understand that you know, we may, it may take us 20 years, 20 years to do something, right? 
Uh, and so if you look at Tesla, Tesla and look at Elon Musk, Elon Musk is actually a great like marketer because what he did when he created Tesla, he started with Tesla Roadster and then he had Tesla Model S, Tesla Model 3, and it took him like, I think literally like almost like 20 years now to get to this point of Tesla Model 3. But the great marketing part was he was giving people a vision and they were actually ready to wait and give him more money essentially, right? And he was able to pull this, which was really interesting that he went through the stages. So definitely when we say that we want to you know, move to the future where decentralized Google and decentralized Facebook and decentralized internet, we are giving people a long-term vision. But uh, we want to, to understand what the stages are for this vision, even if it's gonna take us like many years. And I think it will take us many years. There's another observation, which is, if you look at Google, for instance, uh, at 1998, it was pretty much clear for people at, in 1998 that Google will become a trillion dollar company. Because, because they had something point. right then. Yeah, like, right then like it, yeah. So, uh, it was a gut feeling. So, but the reason why it took 20 years, because when Google was released, people were different. A new generation needed to raise. And for this new generation, Google is gonna, it's very different than for people who were living in 1998. So this, this delay is due to this generational change. Very much the same, I think, for crypto. You know, the generation that will be there 20 years from now, from, from, uh, for them, crypto is going to be very different. And it's un unavoidable, I think, this 20 years wait is unavoidable. It doesn't mean that it, it don't, won't grow, will grow, but it will not grow in a day. You know, Bitcoin will not be like there, like, you know, three years from now, it's not going to compete with dollar. So that's kind of an answer. But then, you know, different is a bit of marketing pitch. Definitely by the end of the year, we're not going to do everything which AWS can do, can do, but we are at least, you know, targeting that, you know, some basic things like MVP or major things that people run on AWS, you will be able to do on scale. But by major things, we, we mean this year, uh, definitely some, any type of like web application, mobile application, uh, as far as, well, I'll talk about file storage in a moment. We're not targeting video or streaming this year, but for file storage, actually, we actually think that we'll be able to compete to this uh, Dropbox even this year because you know when you have uh, when you have uh, a blockchain and, and we actually extended solidity to uh, be able to store files, right? We actually store files just on a regular Linux operating system. So when it goes, it goes into EVM, but then it goes from EVM into Linux. So the storage that we're using is actually just regular Linux storage. And then our, our, our default chain is 16 node chain. So when you upload a file, you will actually to get, get copied, obviously, to all of the 16 nodes because blockchain is, every, everything is a copy. So then once you upload the file to scale, it's actually available from EVM, and then it's copied to all of the 16 uh, nodes of this chain, or this blockchain. But then if you think about this, if you were to store a file on AWS, you would need to have a content distribution network anyway. So if you have an image or your website has an image, you know, this image usually gets copied to Australia and America and Europe and multiple servers. So yeah. it's actually the 16 old thing. So what we say, what we want to end, end we actually hope that our storage uh, initially will, won't be much more expensive than AWS. And, but then, uh, again, it's a long-term vision. I'm not saying that it's gonna happen now, but we really don't want people to run our things on AWS. Although we understand that we will do it, this is very expensive, right? I mean, I think they will, will soon realize that if they do it on AWS, they will lose lots of money because it's much, much cheaper way to, to run our stuff. And so I hope what will happen when we start, they probably will start on AWS. Then I hope they will at least start moving from AWS to just regular hosting, just hardware hosting. And then the long-term vision is that there are many things around the world, like so-called dark servers, like enterprises buy servers, they switched off, you know, some hosting companies buy servers, they switched off. Really the long-term vision is to, to get cheaper and cheaper. And the, the good thing about blockchain, what happened for instance to mining, you know, miners were uh, interested in creating cheaper and cheaper way to mine and they just created lots of innovation. 
As a long-term vision, we hope that this also create an innovation for computing power or storage. The fact that they will, they will make it is like fixed money, but the costs they can minimize. <clears throat> so, so you said a lot there, and I, I, it's a lot to pick apart. Um, so there's there's some immediate things that jump out at me from what you said. Um, first off, 16-node network, that's fine. Um, probably using a either a classical consensus algorithm or using some permissionless system with private networks, you know, click, whatever, um, for a, you know, if you're doing Ethereum, it's probably something like that, or maybe proof of authority. It doesn't matter. You're still coming to consensus on the data. So that means the data is replicated across all the nodes. That means that if I have one node, if I have one user in the system, which is um, dumping a tremendous amount of data into the blockchain, that block that is replicated 16 times. And if we expect users to run their own nodes or put the scale system in, you know, let's say not AWS, but their own hosting system, that's still massive replication of data. Um, companies like Storage, who've been attacking this problem of data rep, uh, of basically data storage using um, a consensus mechanism like a blockchain have typically used things like check-ins. So basically, essentially equivalent to sticking an IPFS address into, into a smart contract. And then that, would, that IPFS address is self-managed and replicated through some replication scheme. What are you doing? Are you actually putting the, the information in the blockchain or are you putting a reference to the information in the blockchain and then have a separate system for replication which people can either trust or not trust or not need to trust because it's content addressed? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. So, so if you look, like, there's like two, not two like, um, radically different things. One thing, you, you can put just data into, into EVM, which is super expensive. You can literally store things on the mainnet, on the zero mainnet, it will cost you like dollars or whatever, like line of, line of text. So that's really super expensive. But things like IPFS, which target like to be super cheap, right? That's the entire software, cheap and decentralized and distributed. Uh, but IPFS is not compatible with smart contracts. You can't just record or pull data from IPFS into Solidity by just using Solidity code or EVM. Our stuff in the middle. So uh, our storage is probably not going to be as cheap as an IPFS. So if someone needs a really, really, really cheap storage, probably they will use IPFS. We're in the middle. So if you want to create like a website on, uh, on the blockchain, you'll probably use us. Because in our case, the great thing is that the storage goes through EVM, which means that the smart contract can process this. Let me give you an example. Uh, we're also working on adding uh, AI in, into our EVM. I'm going to talk about this later. But a simple example is, let's say there's a social network that uh, runs on a blockchain. So you want to run a social network, network on a blockchain. You come to scale, you pay to scale for a year, and you get either medium chain or small chain or large chain. Different chains have different storage. You can keep computational capabilities because it's split servers. The, the, the actually the large chain you get 16 whole servers, but for the tiny chain you can get you get actually 16 pieces of servers and each piece is just one, one over 128 Docker container. So so you get this weak chain. But anyway, so so let's say you, you get a chain from scale, it's your own chain, your owner, and you can upload any smart contracts into it, that do whatever you want. So let's say your smart contract do a social network your social network runs in Ethereum in Solidity, essentially. And then a user comes, and the user uh, actually uploads a photo, an image. And what you want to do, usually on social network, the first thing is filtering. You don't want you know, some offensive images on the social network. So it goes to a, social, to a smart contract. Smart contract uses AI to more or less classify the image and say, OK, this image doesn't really contain anything offensive. And then, and then the image is stored, it goes, goes into EVM, Ethereum virtual machine, and it's stored inside Ethereum virtual machine in Linux. Okay, but the I, point this, is- This is a whole lot, I need, to, I need to interject right there because you will go on, uh -huh. I, I get the feeling, this needs to be more of a uh -huh. conversation and, and I think uh -huh. you have some, said some really cool things there, but uh -huh. I, I also have some skepticism about them. So running AI in a smart contract, that is a, a, there's a you're, I'm, I'm assuming you're not running um, you're not using this typical gas operations. You're not counting 
you know, counting pennies over how many operations a particular smart contract does. But one thing we need to focus on is that for these smart contracts to work, every single node in the network must run that same AI and they must come to the same conclusion on that AI. So, Absolutely. So that is a really bold claim to say you're running AI in smart contracts because it's a very mm -hmm. difficult thing to not only get right, but have it, have it, everybody come to consensus on what true looks like in these these kind of systems, which sometimes, by mm -hmm. the way, AI uses random permutation, which we can't mm -hmm. leverage in, in a smart contract. So mm -hmm. um, what do you mean when you say smart contracts are using AI? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I'll, I'll told you that actually before we pivoted kind of into crypto, we actually were doing AI. So using, uh, we actually created this AI simplification platform, which was based on Google TensorFlow. And so we actually, before that, we actually ran the top top uh, models from Google and understood many things about AI. So actually, it's an interesting thing to understand there are two pieces of AI, learning and prediction. Learning when you, uh, you, you need to have like zillions of photos or images, whatever, and then you train your neural network. And that's a huge, hugely computationally intense thing. And then you probably won't be able to do it anyway because you don't have the images or the sounds Google has. So the way things go nowadays is that Google or Facebook, they actually train neural networks. And all the other people, like the small guys, they just use these new networks, you know, sometimes they tweak them a little bit. So the, so the prediction step, when the neural network is, is trained, and then the prediction, is this like an apple or a cat or whatever? The, five, the very important point to understand is that the prediction step of a typical neural network, of a top neural network coming from Google or Facebook, is not so much computationally more intense than a crypto operation already in EVM. So essentially, EVM now has like eight different crypto algorithms, and we just extended EVM also with these prediction algorithms, and they run approximately the, take the same computational power as, for instance, you know, uh, whatever signature, digital signature. So that's not so. So you're basically using pre-trained APIs, uh, pre-trained exactly. APIs, but, but, sticking them in. Right, but there is a totally. You mentioned another very important thing, which is crucial: how to make this deterministic, because lots of the Lots of uh, neural networks use randomness, and also uh, the floating point uh, computation may be different for different computers. So you compile one computer, floating point works one way, and another computer works another way. It doesn't really matter usually for people, but you know, for blockchain, one bit difference is, is a catastrophe. So you need to be this thing to be truly deterministic, and that's what we are. But now we are taking Google TensorFlow <coughs> and making it making it deterministic. And there are two things that we need to do. First of all, random number generators. We need to make sure they all start with the same seed, whatever, so it's actually deterministic. And then also the floating point. You can do deterministic floating point, for instance, by compiling Google TensorFlow into WebAssembly, because WebAssembly is, is deterministic. So we're working on this. It's a pretty complex thing, but it's doable. And that's why we're not releasing it this, uh, this for, for the first version of our network, because it has some doable but tedious things, but it's well underway. And sometime this year, we're going to release this AI thing, which is going to be pretty much Google TensorFlow prediction part. That, as, as you mentioned, very important that it's going to be deterministic. Okay, but what is, how, okay, so that's, that's, that makes perfect sense. Um, obviously, the, the smart contracts themselves don't have any floating point operations, so you'll have some your, your own custom like floating point libraries and solidity, yada, yada, yada. That's all solved, no problem. Um, what is what are people actually using this system? How are people actually going to interact with these these AI? In other words, when people when I think AI on the blockchain, typically the model that people are bit pitching, which is different than your model, I'll, I'll I'll fully fully you know say, is that the actual smart contracts are going to be able to um, do some of the learning part. Um, the the you know, but you're actually using pre pre made models. So um, what how do you see people using these uh, these um, neural networks that are literally built into, already trained in, in this system? How do you see people actually using this in the real world? And um, how does that impact your DeFi, your, not DeFi, your uh, cloud vision on, um, on uh, so like let's say I have an image and I want to upload it. I know you mentioned that before. How would that actually benefit me as a user to have these AI little uh, robots in, in smart contracts that I could actually like submit my data to and then they would give me an answer from? Yeah, that's a great question. And then actually when we started this entire AI thing was literally tinkering. We just wanted to add AI to blockchain. We were really excited about this thing. 
And then we realized we can't really add learnings. We don't know how to do it, and it doesn't really have a market because the way. So we decided, okay, let's just add the simplest thing, the prediction. And we added this, and then we we're looking for like killer application for this, and we found this social network thing, one of the first killer applications, the social networking, basically. Uh, Analyzing images on upload, if you want to do a decentralized Facebook, and making sure that images are not bad. So we came up with this, and it was already exciting because if you think about this, if you don't have this uh, feature, it's really hard for you to create a centralized social network because Facebook constantly analyzes images on upload. So we came first with the social network killer app. But then, then there are some other things which are more like research. Very interesting, for instance, how can one do a stable currency based on some neural network? Can, can you create, because now you can have this neural network, which is really powerful, can you, can, can you create a, a, a stable currency which would stabilize itself better because it uses AI? Also interesting things like putting face recognition or authentication, these things, and also all kind of financial AI. But I think at this point, uh, uh, actually another thing that other people are trying with our AI is uh, copyright protection. Or let's say you have a network which pays for music, but you want to pay for original music and not for someone stealing someone else's music. So there are these applications for prediction. Uh, we hope that uh, most of the stuff is going to be done by our developers. During hackathons, we had many people trying different things. Most of the things I think at the moment uh, were around images, image classification, or things like that. But uh, that's how we see it at the moment. You know, the social networks they is kind of the killer thing. Then they defy all kind of AI algorithms. I'm going to talk this about, about this a little further in, in the future. But uh, we also have the privacy. We'll, we are going to add the private compute computation. So because we'll have private computation, there will be some. Uh, possibilities to do trading or AI algorithms for trading on the blockchain. That's that's another application where we see AI really interesting. Yeah, but that actually has a lot of problems associated with it that are just completely separate, like front running, like mm -hmm. the, uh, what is it called? The, um, yeah, I can talk flash, about front running. Flash yeah, boys can, can just yeah. wrecked everything, like uh -huh. decentralized exchange. Like their uh -huh. Flash Boys 2.0 paper is pretty, pretty hard uh -huh. to contend with. Um, so, do you think your system can actually contend with that in any way, or what? What do you? What are your thoughts on? On some of the uh, like uh, um, transaction reordering and um, just the consensus instability in general, and like DeFi, like uh, decentralized exchanges, like do you think that your system can actually do something around that or no? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and uh, I can tell you the story. So our, our consensus using is using a cryptographic algorithm, which is called called threshold uh, signatures. It's really interesting. Our consensus, our consensus is mathematically BLS? provable. Are you? Signature. Oh, that makes sense. You worked with Dan, so yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember him like actually researching this, and uh, I remember the time when I, I was taking a course from him when he published the paper. And at the moment, the paper was totally. People said, you know, who the hell would ever use that thing? And no one was using it literally for, for 20 years almost. It's really mathematics. Uh, it's funny thing that this BLS signatures, you know, the paper uses research from a French guy and uh, the Weil, Andre Weil, and Weil transformation. The guy actually, in, uh, there was a war, like I think it was like First World War with Germany, and the guy awarded the draft. And then they caught him. And they put him into jail, and he had literally nothing to do in the jail. So he was like researching group theory, some totally, you know, uh, things that had totally no practical importance for anyone. And he came up with this wild pairing, and then no one would use it like for years. And then Bonaire, like I think, uh, like almost like eight years after, used this wild pairing for BLS. And then BLS wasn't used like for 20 years. So it's interesting how mathematics, you know, it's a very different thing. It takes years. To... But anyway, so so yeah, so we're using lots of BLS in our consensus because our consensus is probably mathematically provable consensus. We are the first ever asynchronous and probably provable consensus from the beginning to the end. But wait, wait, the point you said is that asynchronous we're... or yeah, synchronous? Okay. 
Asynchronous. asynchronous. Wow. So like more asynchronous or partially asynchronous? Like what are we talking about? Uh, we are fully, fully, fully asynchronous consensus. So you can you can but, but meaning that you can stop our system for a week and then when you reconnect the network cables, it will start working as nothing happened. Gotcha. There's no time off. No, yeah, got it. So, yeah, yeah, okay. so 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 when you did the signatures, there's another thing which is called threshold encryption. And uh, and then we just wanted to use it somewhere and like trying to find a use for it. And we realized at some point we stumbled on the fact that threshold encryption can actually totally solve the front-running problem. So we actually now have a method which totally solves front-running and we will probably release it by the end of the year. And the idea is that it's very interesting is that when you submit a transaction, what threshold encryption means is that if I encrypt to a set of 16 guys, 11 of them need to get together to decrypt. So, so uh, when I submit a transaction, I, it's encrypted by me, and the guys, uh, the transaction goes into blockchain encrypted. So by the time it's committed to the blockchain, the consensus happens, or the block is created, the, cons the, uh, the consensus inside the block, the transaction inside the block is encrypted. And then once the transaction goes in the blockchain, that is already in the blockchain, this uh, out of 16 guys, 11 come together and decrypt it, and then go and they, it's pushed to EVM. But the point is that at the moment you decrypt the transaction, it's already in the block. So it's impossible to front run it literally because it's already in the blockchain. So we hope that when we release this uh, front running protection, it's really a, the thing, it just works magically in a sense that people just can code. And they don't even need to care. And then there's this, and they just encrypt the transaction when they send it. And it's, I would say, solve almost all the front running problems. So, so once so we release actually, this, I'm having a hard time. So, uh, what, what actually decrypts it? Maybe I didn't, didn't get past that part. Okay. At what point is the world able to actually do the consensus on this if it's an encrypted transaction on blockchain? Uh, yeah, let, let me, let me, yeah, yeah. let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say, let's say, you know, uh, a, 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 a transaction is a, is a page in a book. Right, and a book is is a book, right? So people send their pages and then create a book out of it. The point is that when you send this, your page to uh, to the book to the uh, to the node, right? The page is unencrypted, so people can front run it because they see what's on your page, right? So let's say instead of uh, sending just plain text page, you send an encrypted page. So the node gets this encrypted page, and now you have a book. But the book is composed out of encrypted pages. Now, but the book is stored already on the blockchain. Now, EVM, and when the EVM, it's time comes for the EVM to process these transactions, the EVM takes the, this book and decrypts it one page after another and processes it, and Every decryption step involves 11, because we have 16 node blockchain, every decryption requires 11 of these guys to count. So we're separating, essentially we're using the fact that we're separating in time, the time when the block is created, the time when the block is added to the blockchain, and the time when the uh, EVM uh, processes the, the block. You can see EVM as a bot, right? Uh, I, when I tell people about EVM, I tell them it's like, it's a bot that eats transactions, it's like Pokemon, you know, eats transactions. So creation of a blockchain and running on EVM are, are different things. You can create like a blockchain of a thousand block and EVM can, can run later on it. It's a, uh, the processing of smart contracts is a separate moment in time. So, so that, that, that allows us to encrypt, add to blockchain and decrypt at the very last moment. Essentially- Who is doing the decryption? So, so every virtual machine has the ability to decrypt every transaction. Isn't that equivalent to like, does that matter? Like, so that's, that's the problem I'm having right here. Um, if you add an encrypted thing to the block, but block, but every node, even if they could collude, have to collude in some way to form the key to actually post to, to decrypt, doesn't that mean that it's equivalent to just being able to decrypt when they add it to the block? Like, can't they just do that right off the bat? Like what's, what's actually, protecting them from decrypting it until later. That's what I'm not understanding. Right, uh, what, what protects them is 11 of them are supposed to, most of them are supposed to be good. So most of the nodes 
won't decrypt, won't participate in decryption procedure until they, they're sure that this, this transaction is already in the book. So we have the last 16 guys. Out of us, 16 guys, 11 are good guys, five are bad. And 11 guys are actually, you know, good people. So we get these pages, right? Oh, they're all scrambled, encrypted. We create books out of them, right? And they don't, ah, the good, good guys, our common agreement is when we create books out of these pages, we don't decrypt because, because we have, right? So we decrypt, create books. And then once one each each of us has the same book, and then we talk to each other, we know it's in the blockchain. Now we say, okay, guys, we all good. Now we all know that it's already in the book, right? Uh, you can't now change the pages in the book. It, 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 it's fixed. Now we now we talk to each other through EVM talks to us again and says, guys, now uh, you all know that this page is already in the book. They cannot be front running anymore. Now please decrypt. Participate in the decryption ceremony. And uh, 11 of us, each of us does a, a piece of decryption, and these pieces are glued together, and we get a common decryption. So yeah, to decrypt- signature. So let's just okay. say in that case, you would have 10 out of 16 is, is, is required. Exactly. If, if only five of them are, 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 are uh, Byzant, I wouldn't call them malicious, um, then, then they can't uh, decrypt. The problem I have, though, is that um, it does incentivize um, people to do this off-chain, which means that the evidence trail for this kind of front-running wouldn't even exist, um, and there would be no way to really detect whether or not they're actually doing this kind of behavior. Am I, am I misunderstanding that? So in this, in this system, they, they cannot be front-running unless 11, uh, unless... Uh, uh, so those are basic than, security uh, assumptions. I understand. Okay, cool. Right, this, All right. That's okay. fine. No, I get it. Okay, cool. So um, your security assumptions is that some you trust up to some n number of, of participants Total. in whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, that makes perfect sense. Right. Okay. Um, and if that's your security assumption and you're public with it, that's that's fine. I mean, if people are right. with that, then that's that's okay. You can even get the certi certified authorities involved here. So they have some base level of KYC and AML going on. So they're actually like, there's, right. there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, oversight, maybe regulation. Of course, this does kind of undermine the very foundational tenets that DeFi seems to have in my, I mean, it seems like it. Am I wrong in that? Or is that, is that, uh, is like, because now you're injecting very centralized authorities into the actual, like, security of your network because you can't just touch, you know, 10 random strangers to not be malicious. You can't because, like, Poloniex could easily own 10 of those nodes and you wouldn't know it because they've given one to their uncle, one to their, their stockbroker, one to their, you know, to their lawyer. And they're all working with their software that has something in front of it that actually does this sort of like analysis ahead of time. Am I misunderstanding yeah, I can, this? Yeah, it's a great question. And I can actually cover this and tell you a little bit more of a even generic picture that we see in this industry. Because now we, our network is like in beta now. And we, we, we constantly talk to all kinds of validators, you know, people who are setting up these validator shops. And I think now we have about the 50 validators in our program. So we know who these people are who are gonna be validating. And this entire business, the validation business is like skyrocketing. There's $7 billion staked now, and this year is gonna be crazy because everyone is doing the staking. What we see is in this staking environment, we see that when, at least in 2020, what's going to happen is that when the networks like ours and some other networks come up and the TH2, most of the validators are going to be either large or medium size. You know, I think most of the capital is going to be going to these validators. And it also see lots of geographic separation because naturally, you know, if you're in a particular country, if you're in France, you're probably going to validate in France because of taxes, personal relationship. And it seems to be very similar, like, you know, regular business. If you are evaluated to seller or contractor, you know your customers and your customers are your kind of treasure. So everyone has influence. So we see this influence by separation of the world on, on many cases on geographic basis, but also on industry basis, whatever. And but what's important, the, the point is very important, is that I want to say that almost every network is going to uh, have the same validators in the sense that ETH2 validators and scale validators are going to be the same people. Because if I'm in, in, in France, 
you know, and I validate ETH too. I will probably want to co-sell to my customers and say, Guy, guys, you know, we also want to validate this uh, to, to, to scale. So naturally, all of these validator guys are gonna be validating a set of brand brand networks. So for us, at scale is gonna be like is a tie or or survive in a sense that either everyone validates scale, you know, or no one validates scale. So it's gonna be like this, like value seller, you know, sell Microsoft, uh, you know, Juniper, Cisco. If you are getting to this list, then everyone does you. And then if you are startup, so 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 that's what we're going to see. And so the point I would like to make, a very interesting point, is that what we see is that almost every network will probably have a similar level of security because the same validator who validates ETH is going to be validate scale. And also another very interesting point is that the total stake will matter and the total reputation will matter. Because if you validate scale and you validate ETH, and then let's say you get bribed and people know that you screwed scale, right? People will undelegate, uh, take money, uh, remove money for, for ETH too. So your reputation as a validator is not going to be like scale, good, uh, uh, ETH too bad. It's going to be cross, cross boundaries of the network. And that's why what's going to happen is that for us, that scale is actually beneficial because this guy that validate, validate us will also validate ETH2, and we hope to kind of piggyback on their reputation for ETH2, not to screw us too, right? So there's really interesting dynamics uh, going on. And the, the last thing I want to say is that the validators of 2020 is going to be very, very different people compared to, to miners of 2017. It's a very different type of, of a system, I think. Gotcha. So, okay. So let's let's transition a little bit into what more of the cloud computing architecture kind of looks like. So you're storing uh, in blockchain. You're actually like storing literally in the blockchain. So that means that all the all the content is part of the part of the block hash. I assume is that correct? So like mm -hmm. you can assume Absolutely. every block is of a variable length size, and when you commit a block to the blockchain, the images the, let's say the image you're sticking to images and text posts for uh, decentralized Facebook. Let's just use that example. I make a post, I post a meme, and I post some, haha, this is funny, and it says it's from me, and it, which I have some address, and it has an image, and then it has the text. So all that would be stored at the blockchain. Um, how does this scale, to you know use your company, how does this scale when we do so stuff like this at large? Like, I'm not sure I see quite the scaling solution at this point, meaning that by using the blockchain as a means of storage, redundancy is, is handled through the blockchain, but it's ridiculously run redundant. Do you do anything like chunk up the data or partition the responsibility of storage amongst nodes, or is it fully fully stored across all nodes um, in the network? Um, is there any way to prune this data or reasonably freeze it so that you don't have to um, per perpetually keep it in a um, decentralized storage format because that would be kind of growing quite quick as you gain adoption? I think, I think, I think yeah, I'll explain you how it actually works. So, so you have the blockchain and let's say you upload an image, right? So the image initially goes into the block, but then block is uh, just a transaction. Block is include, includes transactions, right? So then EVM is, is a bot, it's a Pokemon. And this Pokemon processes one transaction after time, eats it and changes its state. So when EVM actually eats a transaction in the block, it, uh, this image goes from the block to the EVM storage, through the EVM to the Linux operating system. So now it's stored not in the block, but also in the EVM. But the block is now processed. It becomes a historic block. So that image now is both in the EVM and also in the historic block. But we can prune, prune historic blocks after a week or so and do a checkpoint. So we can, we can the old blocks one day have been, have been processed by EVM. We don't have to keep them, we can just prove them. So this sexual uh, explosion of storage, you mean, don't actually, doesn't actually happen because we actually prune old blocks and just, you know, essentially change the genesis uh, point of the blockchain. Because after a week, we don't really need the blocks, we don't actually store the old blocks for so long. So that's, that's actually solved the problem you mean. And then we actually have like essentially 16 Linux servers, each, each of them storing a pattern of an image. So it's not so much of a, it, it's not possible than storing on a single server, but as I mentioned, if you would actually do a good website, you would use a CDN anyway, and CDN would use 
copy your image to multiple servers. Anyway, so you could say, okay, just it's a CDN. In fact, we actually hope that our, our chain can be used uh, as a content distribution network because essentially if you have the 16 node you know, chain, one of the nodes hopefully is in Australia, one in America, hopefully they don't all run in the same AWS data yeah. center. But yeah, if you go, I've seen that. Right. It was actually really cool. I like I like that idea. Like the idea of using a blockchain is, or some some decentralized system as as a replacement for existing CDNs. Uh, although I, I I don't know if there's enough demand for it. It is a very lightweight solution to that kind of problem. Um, my my question uh, is, is is like you keep saying sixteen nodes, and I'm kind of wondering is that a limitation of First off, what consensus algorithm are you using on your chains? Because you're saying you're using a fully asynchronous uh, network, which uh, blockchain itself has synchrony assumptions worked into it. So mm -hmm. I'm it, making it literally inherently synchronous. Um, you mm -hmm. say though, however, you're using a, a fully asynchronous system. That makes me, oh. that piques my interest. Like I really wanna know what that looks like. First of all, like what algorithm are you using to be fully asynchronous? And um, how do you get around the blockchain synchrony assumption where each block depends <clears throat> on the previous block in order to build an actual chain? It's a great question. So, so I'll, it's, 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 uh, I'll take a little longer to explain because it's, it's the very kind of fundamental thing. So when we started, I, I'll, when we started to do this big data uh, thing and blockchain, we thought that we could do it really easily initially. And we just tried to use regular big data algorithms. But, what we what getting is that anything we tried, like just simply we, we would find a security hole. And then we found, we read some other people's white papers and we found security holes in them. And we realized that there was not, there was like the papers, like every paper used their own language. We couldn't understand it. And we, when we tried to go, go, go deeper and deeper, we found more and more security holes. So, so we decided to step back and understand how can we make it secure? Because at some point we got so depressed, we, 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 we said, okay, we need to understand how for ourselves prove that this is secure. What's the mathematics of it? And, and we got back and what we did, we said, okay, because, because it's a very simple problem. Let, let, let's a very complex problem. Let's approach this as a car. You know, car is a very complex system, you know, has many things, but if you are able to logically split the car into carburetor, engine and wheels and brakes, if you, if you understand the logical split, then every single part is much less complex in the engine. And then you can, and then it becomes modular because you can compare cars. You can say, okay, BMW has a better engine, but you know, Mercedes has better brakes, whatever. So we decided because it's complex, the thing, the blockchain consensus, we need to build a logical model at a high level. And then if we, if we build this coherent logical model, we can prove that if every part is secure, and then if they at a higher level interact properly, we can prove the entire system is secure. So we build this logical model, and we have now the seven step or eight step logical model, where we know that if every step is secure, then the entire thing is gonna be secure. Now for every step, then we went to, uh, to basically computer science to academia and found the best algorithm that we could uh, that was probably secure for this particular part. And then, and then we build our stuff. So our stuff, first of all, is modular, and then it's probably secure from the beginning to the end, not because we proved this, but because we have this model where we can prove that if every part is secure, we, it's, the other thing is secure, and every part is secure, the academics prove it. Now, when we start doing this, what we realized an interesting thing is that we can now take any other consensus and map it into this model. And when we map it, we can easily point security problems because we can look at the consensus and say, wow, here's a car. This car has a huge engine, and, but this car doesn't have any brakes. And we say, okay, it's insecure. So, so what we're now saying is that we're not claiming our consensus is the best, we are claiming that our consensus is the fastest, probably secure consensus. There may be faster consensuses, but they are insecure. We don't know of any secure consensus that's faster than ours. Now, uh, one of the critical parts of this consensus is a mathematical algorithm, which is called a synchronous binary consensus, 
also called the Byzantine generals problem. It's a problem where generals need to vote how to attack the city from the left or from the right, and they need to agree. So for this Byzantine generals problem, we took the most, the best currently available thing from academia. It's a consensus which has been developed by a, by a team at University of Nantes in France. So we're using this consensus. And this consensus using, using VLS uh, signatures. So basically, the idea is that we don't really develop any of this. A startup doesn't have time to do academic research. We just stole pretty much all of the things from academia. But now we know from about many other guys, you know, that they have huge security holes. We don't actually announce it because we don't want to make, uh, don't want to make too many, you know, people look like us. But two consensuses which are really bad. I've been saying about this. I just want to say two that are really bad are Hashgraph and uh, uh, Avalanche. These are they have tremendous security holes. No, we but there are other anyway, people, that's okay. Uh, we don't have to get into okay. that right now. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but all right. So okay. uh, that's fantastic. I don't know. I don't know what the actual name of the algorithm you're using. Um, we have a blog post. I, I can I can send you about the blog post because it's hard. Uh, the it's blog hard post goes into detail. Okay. Gotcha. Okay, cool. No problem. So what are you most excited about in this space? What are, what are you looking forward to seeing coming out of the decentralized space? And what do you see uh, being the, the future of where all of this is going? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, I think um, I did some poll on Twitter and asked, uh, I think people who started crypto, they were, many of them were uh, libertarians. I think many of them, and I, I like libertarians and I sympathize to libertarians. But I'm kind of part of the second generation. I'm like an open source guy. And my view is that, we, that crypto is something that can be used to provide a business model for open source. So, so I'm excited about how open source, crypto, and uh, shared economy is going to get together. And I think in the future, what we'll be able to do, we'll be able to take some of the hugest monsters of uh, of today, Google, Facebook, and turn them and run them on, on decentralized cloud and turn them into much better, better applications. I, I can give, give an example about Google, uh, several examples. One example about Google is that, you know, we were, we were doing this Wi-Fi startup and our stuff was great. It was a free thing. We were doing this Wi-Fi management, like public Wi-Fi. We had a free, free plan. People could come like these 20 access points and like run it for free. And our stuff was the only thing in the world that was actually doing this. But Google would still put us on the search page. So we would go to Google and they would like, you know, enter like free Wi-Fi management software. And it would just create like two pages of crap. And the search page were us and people actually wanted us. And then they had to pay $5 to click to get to the first page. So Google has this incredible problem, a conflict, where they should have been putting us on the first page because people wanted us, but they've been putting us on the third page because they wanted to make money. And once I realized this, I realized that Google is one of the hugest uh, breaks on innovation in this world, and it makes startup life, start life so much more difficult. So I've been trying myself to avoid Google at all means. So what, what I do, Usually, if I need to search for something, I just stop and I say, okay, well, where do I find the best answer? Do I go to Quora? Do I go to Stack Overflow? Do I go to you know, Wikipedia? Do I go to GitHub? And I just bypass Google and I go to a particular site and, and I search, and usually it's much better experience. So you know, a competitor of Google may be as simple as, as a decentralized thing which just sends you to the search box of a different application, of a different you know, site. So I truly believe that a decentralized Google is, is possible now because Google is just becoming so bad. You know, they changed their UI. They, now it's even impossible to, change, to differentiate ads from real results. So Google, uh, Uber, I've been talking to Uber drivers and they are like here in Ukraine, for instance, they are like, they hate Uber because Uber takes 30% of their money. And, you know, if, if a driver, you pay for gas, you pay for your car, like appreciation and then, you know, if they, if Uber takes 30% of your, of your revenue, for you, it's much, much more than 30% in terms of the, of the money you take. So decentralized Uber could be just an algorithm, an open source algorithm that runs on, on blockchain and uh, 
people get 100% of their money. There's no rent. And so I really think that this is something which is going to start happening this year and it's going to change things tremendously. I also believe in decentralized uh, finance in lower loans. So I think this year is probably going to be loans and, and decentralized finance and also games because games are the first thing with any technology. You know, this, when Apple released uh, Macintosh, the first thing your games because gamers are like, like to be excited. So games, DeFi, but then I think decentralized search engines and uh, decentralized shared economy applications. And uh, I think it will provide really a much better economy. I don't think it, it will be a revolution, but there will be an evolution. Many of the, the decentralized communities are going to be more economically effective than corporations of today. So I'm very hopeful that, that we will start seeing this. And what I want to say is that it's changing paradigm Cryptocurrency is actually not so important as the actual decentralized application. Cryptocurrency is the foundation for decentralized applications. It's not kind of the end goal. It's just uh, it's something the decentralized cloud will use to create this new decentralized world. Yeah, I totally agree, and I'm definitely aligned with that vision. Um, I do think that uh, you know your vision of uh, cloud in uh, blockchain is obtainable in some form. I think a lot of these services don't need to be centralized or can be done in a different way that will be a little more democratic and a little more open and transparent. So in, in the cases we want openness and transparency, which is in all the cases. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to see projects like yours uh, pop up so we could start testing these theories and, and working on these ideas. Um, so is there any question I should ask that, uh, that I didn't? And how can people reach you? Uh, yeah, I, can, uh, I think the question I would like you to ask is how can people help us? And uh, so I'll tell you how people can help us. The funny thing is that um, now there's so much, there are so many ways to make money on, on these things because decentralized networks, you know, this year is crazy, you know, we have money from VCs, you know, other people have much more money than us. So everyone is giving out money for people doing good things. And we, and it's lots of money. I think we'll have like, prizes of up to $10,000 for hacking us or finding security holes. We're about to run an uh, incentivized testnet where people can tinker and find any problems. And the problems can be small problems. You can find a problem with like, documentation. You can find a bug. It doesn't have to be, a, it's not all about like being like super duper like cryptographer. You can find a UI problem which, you know, doesn't run well, crashes, anything like that. And, and actually, there's very little few people knowing about this. So if you want to make money, just to, you, if you have my Twitter, you can just subscribe to the scale. Twitter will be announcing the program soon. The program will go through Gitcoin, which is a website that people can make money by helping. There's another uh, thing which is called Hacker One. Very nice thing where hackers uh, unite and somehow try to find to fix things. But also, even without these programs, we're looking for just developers, open source developers to help our project. It's our project is fully open source. Anything, everything is, is on GitHub. You can, there are several reasons why you want to contribute. One reason you want to just put some fun stuff on your resume. So if you just, you know, help us create documentation or fix, fix a small bug, you can put the stuff on your resume and people will hire you better. Or if you want to contribute more, we can have actually our tokens. So if, if you become a little more invested with our project, we have some budget, you know, to help outside developers. So we're really, really interested in people actually contributing to us. And also, if you are a DF developer, if you really want to do a startup, you know, decentralized Facebook, centralized Uber, we do have some connections with VCs. We can uh, refer you to VCs. Uh, and, you know, if you are excited about the decentralized cloud and really want to do something, really, we will really be happy to help you. What we see is that too many people are just uh, going to hackathons and just, you know, not so seriously doing things. We really love people if they want to do something important, you know, if they really want to do a startup. If you want to do a startup and bet your life for some period of your time, you know, on this thing, you'll be really happy to help. Thank you, Stan. That was awesome. I really appreciate it. So uh, okay, cool. uh, everybody, uh, you know, check out Scale. Amazing product. They're working on something. He's got a he's got a really solid vision. So yeah, thanks. Thank you, Colin. Great, great, great question. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.